This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, hosted around Australia and on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carleen. My guest today is Jane Morton, clinical psychologist and activist and campaigner for Extinction Rebellion Victoria. Hi, Jane. Thank you for joining us. Hi. It's great to be here. Firstly, can you tell us about yourself and how you came to join Extinction Rebellion? Well, yeah, I was somebody who was had young kids, um, was clinical psychologist, this is back in 2007, and I really thought, along with most people, I guess, that we had 100 years. Like, there was a bit of stuff going on with climate. You know, there was a bit of environmental degradation, overfishing and so on, trees getting cut down. But I really thought it was no big deal and that scientists would be on top of it and that it was going to take 100 years. And then it was actually one of my psychology colleagues who persuaded me to go to a climate talk and... That's where I saw the graph of the Arctic ice because 2007 was the big melt. Um, it's when suddenly the Arctic ice started melting ahead of 100, the 100 year type predictions. So I got on a, um, a mailing list with David Spratt and Philip Sutton, who were in the process of writing what turned out to be Climate Code Red, which is one of the first real climate emergency books. And it was such depressing reading um, because at that point, I think we were starting to realise that scientists were saying it was an emergency. It was nothing in the mainstream media about it being an emergency, but people like James Hansen, very, very credible, were saying it was an emergency. So, yeah, basically we started all these climate emergency groups. We were aiming for a 10-year transition at, um, at a speed and scale never before seen in peacetime, which is sort of like wartime speed, and um, helped set up Beyond Zero Emissions which again was so radical at the time, like the idea that you could get to zero emissions in 10 years and then even go beyond and start drawing down was pretty extreme, even in the climate movement. So we spent 10 years, well, we spent five years out of the 10, trying to get some traction as little grassroots groups and just getting like nothing in the media, nothing anywhere really, um, except amongst ourselves. So halfway through about 2015 or 16, I actually quit my job as a my main job as a psychologist um, because, I, you know, I just knew it was an emergency and I felt like sometimes we say an Extinction Rebellion um, privilege to know, duty to act. Like in a sense I wished I didn't know, but since I knew, I just felt I had to quit and do whatever I could. Um, but we still didn't really know what to do. But in 2016 when the reef bleached, um, Margaret Hender in South Australia came up with the idea of what our, should, our demand should be. Like all those those eight years or so, we hadn't really known what our demand was. But I think it was her and a small group inside the climate emergency movement came up with this idea that we had to ask, that our ask was to debate, was our demand was to declare a climate emergency. 
And it, it was so obvious once we thought of it. But in 2016, it was an election year. The reef had just bleached. And it just turned out to be unbelievably easy to get politicians, well, first the Greens, but also some of Labor, a whole lot of other parties to support, to pledge to support the declaration of a climate emergency. We got the first council in the world, our local council, to declare a climate emergency. And it just seemed to be like a demand whose time had come. And But again, we didn't really have the methodology to win. Like we had... Um, it had a sort of momentum of its own because people could sort of see the truth of it, but we didn't have um, all the tools we needed. I, think I actually got a call from Gail Bradbrook in the UK. I didn't know who she was at that point. And she'd seen a talk that I'd given uh, um, about don't mention the emergency because at that stage I was just so angry and upset that most climate groups literally were pushing this line, fear doesn't work. And, and even scientists were saying, we mustn't tell people how bad it is because they'll just totally freak out. And so it was 2016. I'd already had nine years of this and I was just, I'd had enough. Um, and I did this quite passionate speech at the Sustainable Living Festival. Anyway, Gail had seen it. And so she was ringing up. She said, we're starting a climate group. Can we use your talk? And I went, oh, yeah, great, of course. I thought they were setting up, you know, like a local climate group, right? But anyway, it turned out to be Extinction Rebellion. and um, through David Spratt and Philip and Breakthrough Institute, which had been formed by then, Breakthrough Institute for Climate Restoration, we had connections with the mobilisation, um, the climate mobilisation in the UK, US, uh, which is linked to the Green New Deal and that whole thing. Um, and so, yes, at the start, in 2018, I got a call from um, from someone from the climate mobilisation, Margaret Klein-Salomon, and um, someone from the UK, I can't remember who, and there were a whole lot of breakthrough people on the call. And that was the start of Extinction Rebellion in Australia. I think it was springing up sort of simultaneously in Western Australia. I don't know quite how. But it was just this incredible sort of surge of energy that came out of what happening was happening in the UK and was just in the process of spreading everywhere because that civil disobedience was obviously the methodology we'd been sort of, well, we'd been knowing we needed, but we couldn't think how to get it started. And the momentum that came out of, well, so many things about Extinction Rebellion in the UK, like just the name. I know they had agony choosing the name, but it's, you know, it's just mes- messaging brilliance, right? Extinction Rebellion. <laughs> to avoid extinction, we have to rebel. Yes. It's got almost the whole message of two words, right? And so strong. And, you know, right from the start, they had a banner, climate change, we're fucked. And the, the papers had this big dilemma about whether to take a picture of this, this big banner on the bridge. So, yeah, right from the start, they had this emotion. And, like, up till then, it just had been this, oh, we're in an emergency, sort of no emotion. Mm-hmm. But suddenly there was this intensity mm. and this this way of doing something about it. So, yeah, so then it all took off in Australia from there. Amazing. You mentioned civil disobedience, and I know that recently there was a Just Stop It campaign that was all over Victoria. Could you tell the listeners a bit about that? Well, look, the thing with Extinction Rebellion, the early success they had was, and it was based on this idea that they'd have a wave of of blocking streets and then they'd have a bigger wave of blocking streets and then they'd have a bigger wave of blocking streets. And so already by 2019, they had blocked the streets in the centre of London for 11 days and 11 nights in five locations. Um, It was just extraordinary. And that was where the famous pink boat was and... um, 
you know, it seemed like it was a lot of fun. The police were sort of trying to remove them, but I think there was some sort of problem. They didn't have enough buses, so they'd arrest sort of a few hundred people and then they'd sort of knock off for the night. And then, you know, those ones would come and more people would come and they just couldn't clear the streets. And so after the 11 days and 11 nights, this Conservative government did actually come and talk to them um, and they got a pretty weak, but, you know, some, some sort of acknowledgement of emergency through their parliament, Conservative government. So I think in Australia, I think it was always that, you know, we were going to, you know, have, we blocked a bridge back in um, 2019, had 43 arrests just holding the Princess Bridge for a few hours. And we were just going to get bigger and bigger and um, hold the streets for longer and longer and, and we were going to win. But then, of course, came COVID. And so the big question is, how do you do, you know, mass mobilisation, mass civil disobedience when you can't gather? Well, sometimes you can't gather at all. And for a long time, especially in Melbourne, it was you know, like a maximum of 15, right? So what do you do? So what we were doing, we were watching what Insulate Britain was doing and they obviously were operating inside COVID as well. Um, they'd been coached by Roger Hallam, who, you know, is a controversial figure inside Extinction Rebellion, but, you know, I think is actually a genius. And what they were doing was they'd come up with a very simple demand to insulate social housing as part of um, an obvious step for the climate emergency. And they had this strategy, which was that they would just sit down and block this circular freeway that goes around London. It's almost impossible to get off or get round. And just different times, different little teams would just block it in all these different locations. It was almost impossible to prevent. And each time, like, the police had to fight through the traffic to get to them, and they would cause just hours and hours and hours, I think sometimes six hours of delays. Now, of course, it was enormously, enormously controversial. And they had very hostile reactions sometimes from the um, people who were just stopped. But we were watching that and thinking this, the thing about it is that you've got to cause disruption day after day for a long time. Like we'd been doing like a week's of rebellion, like a week, a spring rebellion, an autumn rebellion. Um, but what they made clear is they hardly really got traction even in the first week. They had to go, well, they went in the end for four weeks and they showed incredible courage. Like they were up against injunctions that would have given, well, that, that is giving them massive fines and or jail sentences, and they just kept going. So that was our model um, as we come out, came out of summer, as we came out of lockdown, that Melbourne especially being the most lockdown place in the world, um, we were quite sort of battered, you know, uh, grassroots uh, local groups. And But we have a wonderful local group called Westside, um, in Melbourne and they had been just from time to time going and blocking the gates of the ExxonMobil terminal in Yarraville and quite recently they'd blocked it with um, a concrete barrel just with two people locked in one on each side and it, they'd held the gates for about three hours but what we had worked out is that it didn't really start causing that much disruption till after the three hours um, especially if you only blocked one gate, which is what we did at that time. So we came up with this idea that, and that actually also been um, fuel, block, fuel blockade. Someone had come up with the idea, I think about a year earlier, that if you only got a relatively small number, actually shutting down uh, fuel distribution was a, a way to cause disruption with a smaller number. So we came up with this plan. It was really only over summer. We had a very short time to organise. We ramped up as fast as we could. Um, and, yes, we. the name of the campaign was 
well, the sort of slogan of the campaign was no more coal, no more gas, no more oil, just stop it. And I guess why Exxon? Well, Exxon is, is such a, an easy target. Well, first of all, there only were three petrol distribution hubs. There was Exxon, there was Ampol, and there was Shell, Viva. Um, Exxon was the biggest, but also it's just the one that is known for literally having done scenario planning decades ago um, and knowing that, that knowing very accurately that they were going to precipitate climate catastrophe, like not, not just a few more hot days, just the meltdown of life on Earth. They knew it back in the 70s or 80s, like decades ago, before even Hansen was talking about it. They'd done this very expert scenario planning, plotting it down in minute detail. And then they'd thought about it and go, will we change our business model or will we fund a campaign of lies? And, of course, I think as many people know, they just funded a massive campaign of lies. You know, I mean, that was the other thing back in 2007. We just thought by telling people the truth, things would change. But they didn't just fund a campaign of lies. They they own large parts of the political system. They heavily influence just about our entire media, even the Bureau of Meteorology has the thumb on it, you know, not allowed to make the connection between extreme weather and um, and climate catastrophe. So we had completely underestimated how evil they were. But anyway, they were a very logical target. And the other practical thing was, like, oh, the, yeah. the hardest thing about Ampol was it had five gates. At that stage we thought Exxon only had two, although it did turn out it had three. <laughs> uh, so I guess what was the public reaction and also Exxon's reaction to this campaign? Well, it was interesting because um, the police reaction and the Exxon reaction, for most of it, was very sort of low-key. The police, we, we were expecting a ferocious police reaction, you know, especially as the days went on. But on the whole, they were quite civilised. And on the whole, Exxon just sort of stayed inside the gates and didn't do much. There was just one guy, we don't know what his position was, occasionally he'd appear, and especially by halfway through the week, he actually came out and he was just shouting at the police about why couldn't they stop it. <laughs> and I'm not sure it was the same guy, but we later on in the week we went to Exxon head office, and I think it was the same guy we could see through the glass doors that people had glued onto, just again, just, go, just going red in the face and apoplectic. So we did get a bit of reaction, but I wouldn't say heaps. I think I think the sort of view was that it was strategic not to turn it into too much of a drama, like, you know, not to do sort of violent arrests or, you know, have big scenes just to make it all very civilised and low-key. And, and it, look, it mostly was um, until the last day. So we did a variety of tactics. We were, we were classic Extinction Rebellion. Um, Local groups take, took responsibility for different um, parts of it. And we had this really hard balance between open organising and closed organising. Um, so we had to sort of like involve and invite people from the whole of the movement and preferably new people as well, but without police being able to know exactly where we were going to go. And we only had basically three targets, right? So it was a very nerve-wracking thing how many people were told. But anyway, the way we did it was we had like, um, little groups organising each action and you had to sort of commit to be there on a particular day before you got to find out was what exactly that action was. So unless you were going to be there all day, every day, pretty much nobody knew the whole plan. Um, 
Yeah, so in the early days, well, one of the first thing we did was two barrels, which turned out to be very hard to fill with concrete three people um, because we'd learnt that if you just have one barrel um, with two people on the ends, they just pick up the barrel with heavy lifting equipment, shift the whole lot of you out of the way. But with three people, two barrels, they couldn't do that. They had to tunnel into the concrete, which took about three hours. That was the first one. Then we had later in the day, we had a burning earth. I think they didn't expect us to go back the same day. Um, looked like just papier mache, but it had a very strong structure inside. Again, people locked in to the sides, glued onto the sides. Um, that took about three hours, I think, that night to remove. Um, Tuesday was when we surprised them and moved to Ampole with the five entrances. We had four trucks and one that was just a cyclone gate we didn't think was that important. They had just people locked on. But, of course, that was the first to go. But yeah, we had trucks with people actually with locked onto each other via a metal tube on top. Very hard to remove, but the weak link was the cyclone gate. Still lasted about three hours. So I was up top of a truck on that one. Um, Wednesday, they were waiting for us pretty much everywhere. We were going to shift to Shell, but they were waiting. Um, we set up a tripod in this choke point in the road, um, which was, again, very effective. Well, it was reasonably effective. They cut the legs off it and brought it down that way, which was something we weren't expecting because they had people locked around the base. They just lifted it sort of off the people at the base. Meanwhile, people set up on ladders back at ExxonMobil, tall ladders, again, with people locked on at the base. That took another few hours. Um, Thursday, we had a day off. Friday, we went to head office. Saturday, we were going to hire trucks again. Um, couldn't get a truck and came up with the idea of jumping on the petrol tanker, which, you know, was unbelievably scary to think about. Turned out to be pretty easy. And, look, the interesting thing is that that's a really absolute standard tactic of Insulate Britain, which is going absolutely nuts at the moment. They have just, they're getting, I think it's 800 arrests already. They've actually restricted petrol supplies in the UK. And they're mainly just jumping onto tankers and locking onto them because, of course, it's very hard to cut people off a tanker because of the fire risk. Um, they've also got unbelievably brave young people um, locking on inside the petrol distribution hubs to pipes and things. They've got people, I don't know how they've done it, they've got people on top of tankers inside the actual refuelling stations. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And 800 arrests, that's fantastic. That's real civil disobedience there. Do you think that the Just Stop It campaign will continue on here? Most certainly. Basically, we we always knew the election was coming. Like it, it ended up being at the absolute last, you know, latest possible date pretty much. So we'll go into just, you know, with the rest of Extinction Rebellion, the rest of the climate movement, we'll go into sort of more like election mode, which favours more just, you know, little opportunistic actions, you know, banner drops behind politicians, that sort of thing. Um, not so much the massive disruption. While there's a massive you know, focus on the elections, it's not worth it. Um, after the election, it'll be very interesting. There'll be a new government and Blockade Australia is already planning basically to blockade the streets of Sydney around the 40, 50 day mark, which is on the early side for a government, like it's a bit early for, to, to test the government at that point. But still, it will be a very strong statement from some very determined Australian young people who are, are incredible, you know, in terms of the stuff that they do. With, again, great big, you know, poles and tripods and up all sorts of coal infrastructure. Very, very brave. So they'll be doing that around the 50-day mark. We're thinking to ramp up again around the 100-day mark, which would be 
basically a spring rebellion again. So we'll be mobilising, doing smaller actions, going up to Sydney to learn what Blockade Australia can tell us about these incredible structures and things that they use. And then we'll be ramping up to just doing something huge in September because even if we've got a Labor government, even if you've got independence and Greens in the balance of power, the chances that they will spontaneously declare an emergency and initiate a massive um, unprecedented transition at the speed and scale that's required and be guided by a citizens' assembly, which is also part of our demands. The chances of them doing it without any pressure is pretty low. So we won't be just going, sitting back and going, oh, great, we've got Labor. We'll be pushing hard. Uh, it's because at the Climate Emergency Summit, um, in Melbourne uh, last year. Uh, so David King came. He's, he was advisor to the UK government, uh, but he's now retired so he can speak freely. The quote that we used from him, he said, the next three or four years, I believe, will determine the future of humanity. What he's talking about, he's not talking about just a few more solar panels. He's talking about we've got to actually look at refreezing the Arctic before we get to that blue water event. You know, we've got to look at the extraordinary measures that only an emergency mentality can deliver. So that's why even if we get a favourable government, and I certainly hope that we do, we we don't. I don't think we'll be backing off. We'll be yes, reaching that's out. To, right. Like a, a typical extinction mm. rebellion thing is not to try and try not to fight, even with oil executives, but to say, join us. Mm. We're doing this for your children, mm. Too. Mm. and that's what we'll be mm. saying to Labor, the Independents, and the Greens. Um, hopefully. Or possibly to Scott Morrison or, or Dutton. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> that's our message for yeah. next September and that they should and, work yeah. with us to preserve a livable planet for our kids. Um, and that will be our message to people, mm. even who think, you know, now it's all going to be fine. It's not going to be fine, not unless we get that emergency transition. That's right. And I guess in the spirit of, you know, trying to still scale up as time passes, if people are interested in getting involved, how can they join Extinction Rebellion? Look, the main thing is just to go to ozrebellion.earth. It, it, it's, you know, there's a great big join us button there. Um, you could just um, have a look at any of the Just Stop It posts too, and there'll be details about Just Stop It that, and particularly um, our donate button would be really appreciated. Uh, of course, it does cost a bit, all this stuff that we've just been doing, and it, it'll cost even more what we're planning to do um, later on in the year. Um, but find your way into Extinction Rebellion and you won't, it won't be hard for you to find your way to just stop it. Um, and there will be all these other broader sort of election-related things to get involved in. Um, but like a practice, you know, because it was very hard at first. It was very scary. Like the first time I sat down on the road with Prince's Bridge and the policeman sort of grabbed me and took me off, it was unsettling it's a big step to go from ordinary life to that um it scared the living daylights out of me the night before I was getting on the tanker especially since it was my idea it was just like so much weight on my shoulders I couldn't eat couldn't sleep um you know there's all this anxiety the day of the action but once you do it it's really quite exhilarating it's this feeling of power and this relief that finally you're doing something that's proportionate so the thing is that there'll be a chance for people to sort of practice that courage you know exercise the bravery muscle with smaller actions practice working together um in that decentralized style of organizing which is again very exciting but a a bit different um and yeah work their way up to ideally like what we call it is civil resistance now like it's not just go to a few protests it's 
we need at least a handful of people to really dedicate their lives over the next few years to taking some pretty big risks. Like one of one of our um, Extinction Rebellion friends who was in Melbourne for a lot of the um, early days of Extinction Rebellion, now in Sydney, that's Andy George. He's just got sentenced to three months in jail. Um, one of the Blockade Australia um, young people, four months in jail. Um, there's somebody else with a year out on bail but facing a year in jail. So, like, it's got quite draconian up there in New South Wales. I mean, it may eventually get draconian down here. I hope not too fast. Um, so it does take courage. But there is nothing more satisfying at this point in history than having that, being able to say to your kids, being able to say to yourself, I did everything, everything that I could. I absolutely agree. And there are many different roles as well. But this, you know, if we think again about the next three to four years being transformative in, you know, either our species going extinct or having a chance for survival, the scale of the actions kind of have to be proportionate to that. People who have to get on top of the truck, there's the people who need to lock on. But there's, for everyone, like we were getting four or five people arrested per day, but behind them were 40 or 50. So we need the people just to pick up people from the police stations. We need the people to give us money. We need the people to make the banners. We need the people by the side of the road to just stand and cheer and chant, you're a climate hero as people get carted off. Uh, we need the people to make the barrels, you know. We need the people to to make the signs. We need the people just to look after people who are locked on and give them a drink of water. There's a thousand roles because, um, of course, not everyone can get arrested. Like people at different life stages, um, people have different lives. But, yeah, there are lots and lots of ways to get involved and we need everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I yeah. always forget to say that. No, it's, I make it sound like everyone's going to get arrested. You don't, everyone doesn't have to get arrested, <laughs> but everyone has to mm. really put in. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. So just just to recap, we've been talking to Jane Morton, clinical psychologist, activist and campaigner for Extinction Rebellion Victoria. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's to great it. to be able to have a voice directly to people. And I really hope, I really think your audience is probably the exact people who might have been going, what can I do? What you can do is join Extinction I Rebellion think so, right, now. right now.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Climate of the Climate Action Show. I went to join King Lake Friends of the Forest for a rally to save two coops in the in the Tanglefoot walking track in Talangi. The forest surrounding the renowned Tanglefoot walking track was scheduled for logging or is scheduled for logging from Vic Forests. So on April 9, there was a peaceful rally at the Tanglefoot picnic area to stand up for the places that we all love and say no to eight more years of native forest logging. The Victorian government wants to drag out native forest logging until 2030. That industry does not make money. It operates at a taxpayer-funded loss. Keeping Vic Forest on life support for more than eight years will cost Victorians and Victoria just under $200 million. Now, really think of all the public services that could be better suited or funded to receive that money. It will also cost our climate. It will also cost the lives of threatened species. It will also cost our water supplies. It will cost Victorians some of our most beloved places. The Tanglefoot Forest in Telangi will be smashed up to feed the paper mill because 86% of native forests logged in Victoria are pulped or chipped. The Great Tree Project was also there and it displayed an epic and beautiful 80-metre eco-dyed mountain ash which was unveiled at the rally. So please listen to the rally audio and enjoy. I was going to go over briefly over what's happening in our forest. Um, people here know what's happening with logging in general. A little bit, not everything. Okay, so I was going to go over the basics just for, for 10 minutes or so, but with this rain, I'm just a little bit worried about the great trees. So maybe, maybe if we do the great tree first and then perhaps come back here. Uh, one of the reasons we're here is to um, to ask people to write submissions to because Vic Forests are releasing their new timber release plan, which means a whole lot more forest is going to be available for them to log, including right here where we're standing and up on right here where we're looking at. And um, so we're going to ask you to come and sit at a table and write a submission if you've got time today. Also, to go down to Great, Great Tree and spend some time there and possibly, you know, go up into the uh, track up here that uh, is where Vic Forest intend to log. Um, the rain's I'll just keep going. All right. Um, so what's happening in our forest is where the, the Victorian government through Vic Forest is logging about 3,000 hectares um, a year, which is... Uh, four to five MCG football fields a day. And um, and this is all in the traditional land of the Wurundjeri and Tungurong, Gunai Kurnai and Boongwurrung, um, all to the east of uh, the Hume Highway. So when we talk about the central highlands, um, it, we're talking about area from sort of Wollon, Wandong, if you know that area, right up to Eildon, across to Erica and Borbor, the Borbors, and down to Nuji Paltown. That's the Central Highlands. They're logging that very intensively. They're also logging in Gippsland and in East Gippsland. They're logging to the west as well, but not quite as intensively and extensively. Um, so when... 
firstly, I'd like to pay my respects to the, uh, the custodians of this land. They have never um, uh, ceded sovereignty and uh, they looked after this land and, and, and lived in harmony with the land for 50,000 years. And it's amazing what we have done in a couple of hundred years to destroy that, uh, that precious place that we have. Um, I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and, um, and, and acknowledge the, the traditional owners. Um, so what happens with, with the logging in this forest is that 60% of what is cut down remains on the ground. It's very wasteful logging. And then what is taken off the mountain 85% of that ends up as paper or cardboard or um, pellets that are very short-lived. Uh, the rest is burnt. Um, so when, it, when, the, when that waste, they call it, and I call it our understory and our ferns and our canopies, when that's burnt, most of that goes up into smoke. So... Um, this is the cultural land and the, and the culture of the First Nations. And every time we, we do this, we destroy part of their culture. Um, we destroy part of ourselves. Uh, the, if we stop logging, and what, we, what we're here today is to ask you, to ask the government to stop logging, stop native forest logging. If we stop logging, we'd have more water for Melbourne. Uh, by 2060, we'd be able to have more water supply for 600,000 more people. Uh, if we stop logging, our forest would be less flammable and burn with less severity. Um, we would have more tourism. This one track here, we should have, we should have tracks and trails all through this forest. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, studies have shown that we can provide 750 jobs through tourism and just looking after this land rather than the 420 that are used now, the 420 jobs now that are in harvest and haulage over the whole of Victoria in native forest logging. We have enough plantation wood to supply the paper mill. Uh, we export 6 million tonnes of uh, hardwood wood chip every year. We have plenty to support the paper mill. Um, so the big one is carbon in a, in a climate emergency. We are cutting down the most carbon dense, well, the most carbon dense terrestrial forest measured in the world. Uh, that's the uh, mountain ash forest. And we're converting it into smoke, mainly smoke and paper and cardboard and some short lived pellets. All of that becomes emissions very quickly. Uh, it's just criminal. Um, the mixed species forest that is, is where it's surrounded in mountain ash forest here, but just a little bit over the way in Talangi is mixed species forest, different eucalypt species. And that is a second, comes close behind the mountain ash for carbon density as well. Um, the other thing we're doing is, so if we, if we had a stopped logging our forest in 2014, there was a calculation done then that we would, uh, we would be storing enough carbon to claim $49 million of, um, from the federal government if the federal government uh, accredited that for carbon storage. Um, 
it's it's about a third of the emissions of Loyang B. It's a significant amount of carbon if we had a stopped logging. Uh, the other thing we're doing is we're destroying our wildlife and um, and we've had several more forest dependent species get put onto the threatened species list. You probably all know Leadbeater possum that's gone from endangered to critically endangered. The Victorian mountain ash forest itself is recognised internationally as critically endangered. We're just cutting it down. Um, and the greater glider has gone from being a common species to now listed as threatened. Its uh, population has declined by about 80% in the last 20 years, which is a little... Oh, there's the great glider. <laughs> the lead meter possum. And um, which uh, I think, Karina, you'll speak a bit more about the great glider. It's a beautiful animal. Um, it's... Uh, where is she? It's, a, it's an animal that's about the size of a cat. It uh, has a ridiculously long tail. It's about 60 centimetres long. And sometimes they're described as a flying koala. So they just eat leaves, eucalypt leaves, which are full of toxins. So they tend to just hang around and denature those toxins. They can't eat anymore until they've taken all the poisons out. And then they'll eat a little bit more. So if you do see them in the forest, they'll just be looking at you and you're looking at them and they're an animal that I can actually photograph and, and I take ages because I have to get my glasses on and get sorted. Um, and, um, and they can glide from tree to tree. Uh, they have a very small home range. They don't just move conveniently. When Vic Frost want to lock down, cut down their forest, they, they've cut down their home range. There's no option. They don't have enough energy to go searching for another home range. Um, at the moment, Vic Forest, well, up until our court case, Vic Forest was able to cut down the tree that we find a greater glider in and all the trees around it. Um, so this sort of leads me on to uh, what's happening. What the good stories are in our forest is that we've got so many probably here today, there must be 10 different groups represented all fighting in the same direction. We're all sort of spreading the word and, and hope you can help us spread the word about, um, you know, the, the importance of preserving our native forest. And um, uh, people are getting in touch with media and doing research and doing direct action. And, and, and there are a, a lot of groups also taking Vic Frost to court and that are all important. The current court case that King Lake Friends of the Forest have um, sorry, I didn't introduce myself at the start here. I'm Sue McKinnon. I'm president of King Lake Friends of the Forest. So our current court case uh, has um, won injunctions and Vic Frost are not allowed to log in any forest stand, a forest stand that they call a coop that they've allocated for logging. They're not allowed to log in any coop that has a greater glider in it or within 240 metres of it. So... Um, yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, other court cases have locked up um, restricted logging and between a lot of us, we've restricted thousands of hectares of, of forests that have been slated for logging. Um, we're going out and looking for gliders as fast as we can, as you can well imagine. Um, and uh, we'll, we will go out tonight as well and, and show some people some greater gliders if you want to hang around. Um, 
so again, like I sort of said at the start, we're here so because we want people to write submissions to Vic Forest to say no more additions to the timber release plan and to ask them to stop native forest logging now. You can also write to the government or just copy the government in on that. And, um, and our court cases have also uh, caused the government, you know, put the government into a bit of a spin and they've actually changed, weakened the logging laws two times already and they're going to weaken the logging laws further. They're, they're just changing the laws to uh, try to beat us in court uh, or out of court. Um, so, um, you know, consider that at the next election. There's an election coming up and we'll probably all need letterbox people to do letterbox <laughs> drops and to speak to their neighbours and, um, and, and speak to their candidates. Um, and I think on that, um, I might just hand over to Karina, who is part of the Great Tree Project. We're walking down here. Um, this is the Great Tree Project. It's still unfinished, but at least we've reached our 80 metre length height. Um, oh, yes. Much closer. As close as you can. The 80 metres. I mean, I, I'm thinking we could go to 100. What do you think, Phil? <laughs> but this is about the age of the trees that, uh, that Big Forest wants to cut down. 80 metres, 1939 fires, uh, loggers call it regrowth, we call it regrowing forest. And in amongst all that regrowing forest are big old trees. The big old trees are so incredibly important and it was that that caused us to, to make this, to really symbolise and be a, yeah, just a little bit of a, a, a pointer for people so that they could recognise how tall and how amazing these big old trees are. And as you can see, there's one over here and there's one, oh, actually there were trees over here logged in about, I think, 2018 or 19, um, right next to Tanglefoot. We wanted to show people and, you know, adults and children as well um, uh, you know, we wanted to show how important these trees really are. And as you walk up, you'll find that there are little creatures, there are snakes, there are butterflies, there are leadbeater's possums way up near the top, there are greater gliders. Um, all of these are just so important for these trees. These trees are like, you know, high rise for, for, um, for animals. And this is the habitat that we're losing. Whenever you get a fire coming through a landscape, you'll get, you know, trees dying, but you will get, and you do see, big old trees that survive. And these are the legacy trees that we need to protect. We can't afford for Vic Forest to come in and sort of go, hmm, here's a big old tree, isn't it great? Uh, it looks unsafe, we'll knock it down, which is what often happens. Um, so look, I invite you to, yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that really touches my heart with this project is the fact that, well, we've been going for three years and we've gone to, through two years of COVID, yet 
we've been able to do this. And that's down to the dedication of these guys. It's been absolutely amazing. And I think, I don't know, I, yeah, it, it, it gets me every time I think about it. Um, so yeah, look, have a walk up and down, have a bit of a look. Um, come and join us if you like. Um, where, you know, as COVID tapers off, we'll need more people because, gee, we might need to go to 100 metres. We might need to go a bit further. But, um, and we're also needing to make some branches, but this is the base. This is what we're going with, and this is a symbol of what's being lost. Thank you. So please, please have a look.
also from our good friends at Climate for Change, the latest climate updates. So as we know, our climate is changing with devastating consequences now and in the immediate future. The recent release of the final IPCC report last week issued a clear warning from scientists that governments and businesses are failing to act. Global greenhouse emissions must peak by 2025 and halve by 2030 to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. It's now or never. After a devastating record February flooding that peaked at 14.4 metres in Lismore, New South Wales, more heavy rains flooded the city again, with residents angered by the lack of government action. Coral bleaching along Western Australia's extensive coastline is now commonplace, with even more recent evidence detected between the Kimberley and Exmouth Gulf. Incidents of heat-related deaths continue to rise each year, indicated by NASA's climate technologies with track heat stress across America. As we know, solutions are available and affordable. Many are already being rolled out around the world. In good news, the global solar and wind energy production has doubled over seven years, reaching levels of more than 10% of total energy and the world as the world acts on the Paris Agreement targets. Tasmania will soon receive its first green hydrogen plant via Brisbane-based company Line Hydrogen, To be powered by a new 5-megawatt solar farm, this project aims to phase out diesel reliance. Also, the the decommissioning of Little Coal Mine in the Hunter Valley has officially begun, making way for the 2023 Energy Hunter Energy Hub Renewables Project. But also, as we know, the people with power to make the changes we need aren't acting fast enough. In fact, some are actively holding us back. While the Trump administration recorded a high number of new oil and gas approvals on public American land, new data reveals that the Biden administration has already outstripped this by a massive 34%. The Australian federal budget was also a missed opportunity to invest in our future, with huge taxpayer-funded fossil fuel subsidies and only a small number of environmental programs funded. The Australian Institute has calculated a 12% increase, which equals $1.3 billion, in fossil fuel subsidies by the Australian government this financial year compared to the 2020-21 total. Despicable. The New South Wales Independent Planning Commission has approved a $400 million expansion of the Noarbury coal mine to 2044, describing the move as completely inconsistent with the Paris Agreement targets. All over the world, though, people from all walks of life are building a movement for the changes that we need and getting on with the job. 
So despite bringing more damning climate data to light, the IPC has detailed five key innovative solutions that will have the largest impact on reducing global warming. In huge news, they've also directly linked colonisation to the climate crisis. While it's not new news, it is radical. Also, students across the world are still striking for climate, with hundreds of thousands turning out on Friday, March 25, alongside supporters to demand climate action now. Angus Taylor's bid to redirect more funds from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, away from renewables, has been blocked again, with a Liberal Party senator threatening to cross the floor if the legislation came to a vote. Global ethical clothing brand Patagonia is standing strong on carbon emissions, threatening to cease all order discounts for its Australian wholesale partners unless they too commit to taking action on their carbon footprint. And in a post-pandemic pushback against single-use plastics, Scotland has reinstated a blanket charge for all single-use coffee cups across the country. It's a race against time, though. We really need everyone. And here are some personal actions that you can take if you've got the time and energy to join them. Stand up. Share your voice for climate at the upcoming federal election. Make sure that your friends and family and associates also see climate action as impacting everything and benefiting everyone. Reach out. Order a free set of the Australian Conservation Foundation's Climate Action Now signs and stickers for your friends. Share it around your house. Share it around your community. Make this seem completely normal and abnormal not to care and think about it. Get informed. Learn the secrets of country on the Tour de Carmichael Cycle for Country 2022 with Wangan and Jangalungu man Cody. And also check out what your election, what your electorate thinks about climate. Read the executive summary of YouGov and ACF's largest ever Australian climate survey. I'll end this episode with another beautiful quote from Halal the Elder from the first century AD. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Solidarity and catch you next week.